Chapter 1 of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1 Our Arrival at Zaytoun. On Sunday, December 4, 1914, the advance parties of the Australian and New Zealand forces disembarked and immediately entrained at Alexandria and commenced their journey through the closely cultivated and thickly populated Nile Delta to Cairo. On each side of the railway line lay palm groves, fields of maize, cotton, millet, and bersium, a species of clover. We noted with interest the primitive method of cultivating the land with wooden plows drawn by buffaloes, horses, mules, and sometimes camels. The vivid green of the fields, the feathery date palms, the picturesque, though appallingly filthy, native villages, the silver threads which reveal the network of canals, combined in presenting to our view a strange and beautiful scene. As we neared Cairo, we saw, for what was to the vast majority of us the first time, the surpassing splendor of an Egyptian sunset. No artist, however great his genius, could do it justice. The golds, the crimsons, the blues, the grays are inimitable. Time and again on the Australian desert have I gazed and raptured on the lights of the setting sun. In the South Sea Islands, I have marveled at the infinite glory of the sky as the sun disappeared beneath the waves, noted the strange elusive lights that illuminated the coral beach, the waving coconut palms, and the tropical forest, and longed to be able to describe the indescribable. But never have I been so conscious of the bankruptcy of thought and language adequately to convey the scene to anyone who has not lived in the East, as on that evening when I saw, for the first time, an Egyptian sunset. Man's greatest emotions cannot be expressed. As a Cornish miner said, when seeking to describe the peace of God which passeth all understanding, it's better felt than telt. And, oh, the surprise of the afterglow the whole sky flooded with soft, mellow, golden beams which transfigured into celestial beauty. Immersed in loveliness, and in an effulgence of glory, the previously stern and forbidding clouds. Everything was bathed in glory. The palms, the stately minarets, even the miserable native huts possessed a beauty. Transient, it is true but beyond the power of man to describe. The citadel at Cairo, surmounted by the alabaster palace and crowned with three great minarets, at last came into view. We detrained during the brief twilight and marched to what was known as the Zaytun camp. Correctly speaking, the camp was really the Helme camp, since it practically adjoined the railway station of that name. In Helme, there are a few European houses, and a fairly large native village. Near to the camp stands the famous obelisk of Materia, the oldest in Egypt. When Abraham visited Egypt, he must have passed almost beneath its shade. Joseph passed between it and its fellow obelisk, since taken away on his marriage day 
when he was wedded Azaneth, the daughter of the priest of On. Here Moses became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Here Plato studied, here Herodotus wrote, and here, for hundreds of years, stood the great temple, which was also a university, the center of learning for the whole of the then-known world. No great distance away lay the model suburb of Heliopolis, a place rich in magnificent buildings and possessing one of the finest hotels in the world. Behind us lay the cemetery of the old city of On, where it was impossible to walk a step without treading on the bones of those who had been buried there five to six thousand years ago. Away to the east stretched the desert of yellow sand and stones, and here and there a stunted shrub. No warm welcome awaited us. Our coming was unexpected, and consequently adequate preparations for our arrival were conspicuous by their absence. Our camping ground was the desert. Many of us, for the first time, had the doubtful pleasure of sleeping in the open air on the sand. Our tents had missed the bus. The night was extremely cold, and felt colder than it really was, owing to the great change of temperature between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. I have often noticed the temperature vary from 30 to 45 degrees Fahrenheit in a few hours. We were hungry and cold. Historical associations may be interesting, but they certainly do not tend to satisfy the cravings of the inner man. At last, to our great joy, one of our number discovered that it was possible to obtain a cup of cocoa and a very small French roll from a Greek canteen keeper. The canteen was a small tent near a brick wall and was immediately surrounded by scores of famished men. Our horses had to be taken away to the nearest place where it was possible to find a fence to which to tether them. By the time this was done, we were ready for bed, and we had no beds and no blankets, nothing but our great coats, as our kits had been mislaid. The sand was up to our ankles, and we fondly, and, as it turned out, foolishly imagined, would consequently make an easy bed. We were bitterly disappointed. We scraped out a hollow for our hips and carefully removed all the stones. But the sand, soft and yielding when we first lay upon it, became each minute harder and harder. I know that my body seemed to possess a peculiarly magnetic attraction for sharp stones which persistently worked their way through the sand and sought to pierce my skin wherever possible. There are happily few unpleasant situations which have no corresponding alleviations. It is marvelous what somber satisfaction I derive from the sufferings of my fellows. Of course, as a padre, I regretted the very strong and sulfurous language in which they apparently considered their complaints should be couched. We walked about, swinging our arms and stamping our feet, and trying in vain to go to sleep, until morning dawned upon many very bad-tempered and hungry men. Some officers were fortunate enough to be invited to breakfast by the British officers of the Lancashire Territorials, who were camped near us. The rest of us had to be satisfied with another cup of cocoa and a French roll. 
All day long, the transport trains came rolling in, and our joy was great when our missing kits put in an appearance. Hearing that there was a YMCA tent in the Lancashire lines nearby, and realizing that if there was one thing more than another which would conduce our men's well-being, it would be a similar institution in our own camp. I took the car from Heliopolis to Cairo and endeavored vainly to find the local secretary and seek to induce him to supply our needs. When I returned, the tents had not only arrived, but were pitched. I shared one with several other officers. I hoped to have a good night's sleep, but was disappointed. There is snoring and snoring. One of my tent mates carried out the art to perfection. He weighed only 14 stone. but. He had at least a 34-stone snore. Not only was it remarkably loud, but he rang the changes on at least five notes, and they were irregularly delivered. In despair, I went back to my nook in the sand and slept like the proverbial top. To my delight, the organizing secretary of the YMCA, Mr. W. Jessup, arrived the next day and interviewed Brigadier Colonel, now Brigadier General, Sir A. H. Russell, with the result that in a very few days a large Egyptian tent capable of seating 300 men was placed at our brigade's disposal. Chairs, forms, tables, writing paper, and envelopes were provided free of charge by that splendid association. Realizing that I could not hope to do better service to the men than by helping in this work, I offered to do all that lay in my power to make it a success. The Reverend D. Galloway, of the American Mission in Cairo, at considerable inconvenience to himself, also worked hard and faithfully and successfully. Two of the New Zealand chaplains, Major Grant and Captain Blamiers, also lent their willing assistance. Our men thoroughly appreciated the conveniences which were so freely placed at their disposal in the tent and it was crowded from the very first. Realizing the terrible temptations of Cairo, which I described in another place, we, who were interested in the men, acting upon the suggestion of the indefatigable secretary, Mr. Jessup, decided that it was vitally necessary immediately to organize strong counter-attractions. A committee was formed to provide for the well-being of the men, and, as a result of their labors, a weekly concert was instituted. At first, the ladies and gentlemen of Cairo were the chief performers. But when the British New Zealanders arrived, we discovered to our delight that we had enough local talent to provide a good, clean, enjoyable program weekly. On another night, experts on Egypt, its history, and archaeology gave most interesting talks on their particular themes. Dr. Zwemer, one of the foremost authorities on Islam, delivered several magnificent lectures. The Reverend Mr. McNeil of the CMS at Old Cairo, Dr. Jays of the Nigerian Mission, Dr. Hume, head of the Egyptian Geological Department, and many others, whose names I am sorry to say I do not remember, contributed to make the weekly lectures an unqualified success. The other evenings were left free so as to afford the soldiers an opportunity of writing home, with the exception of Sunday night, when a service, generally conducted by the chaplains, was held from 7.30 to 8.30. The attendances at these 
free, in contradistinction to the compulsory military parade, services steadily increased. Indeed, it was not long before the whole of the seating accommodation of the tent was taken up. Each weeknight, a very brief service, consisting of a reading of a few verses and an extemporary prayer, was held. A post-box was kept in the tent, and sometimes no fewer than a thousand letters were posted in a day. Stamps and postcards were also sold, so there could be no excuse for any man to go into the city under the pretext of its being necessary. I have sold ten pounds worth of stamps on a mail day. During those early months, I was on duty from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m., and am certain that some of the happiest days I have ever spent were those in the mounted men's YMCA tent at Zaytun. The men's behavior was simply splendid, and to work with and for them was a privilege. My duties were multifarious. I cannot remember how many wills I have made. I only hope none of them will be contested. The men used to come to me for advice about business difficulties. Yes, and love troubles as well. One night, a boy, he could not have been more than twenty years of age, hung about around my table, evidently waiting for an opportunity of speaking to me privately. His usually round face was portentously elongated, and his eyes were wet as he handed me a letter from his girl to read. There is an old proverb that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I suppose it does, certainly in this case it had, but alas, she had grown fonder of someone else. In the letter, the lady said that she did not love him, but went on to describe the fact she loved someone else, Bob, betterer, and that she and Bob were going out walking. As I folded up the letter and handed it back to him, I said, I am afraid you will have to let her go. In accents of woe and despair, and laying intense emphasis upon the last word, he replied, but she's gone. Unfortunately for himself, Bob came to Cairo with a later reinforcement, and the evening after his arrival, he turned up with an eye in the deepest of mourning. By a remarkably curious coincidence, my young friend's face also bore traces of battle. I made no remark, but drew my own conclusions. One of the greatest privileges that the YMCA has conferred upon Christians is that it affords men of all creeds the opportunity of working together with the single object of uplifting their fellows. I certainly never worried about what denomination the men professed, and am positive that they, with one exception, never cared about mine. I was therefore somewhat surprised when, after selling four postcards for the enormous sum of one piester, two pence halfpenny, I was asked this question. What parish in New Zealand are you a priest of? I am not a priest more than any other Christian, I replied. You are ordained, aren't you? Oh, yes. Are you not an Anglican priest? No, I am a Baptist minister. His face grew rigid, and handing me back the four postcards, he said, in tones of the greatest contempt, Please return my money. I was warned not to have anything to do with nonconformists, and I never will.
I am sorry to say I was so amused that I burst out laughing. <laughs> but a fine Church of England man who overheard the conversation by no means shared my mirth, and it took me all my time to prevent the latter from fulfilling his threat. Punching the beggar's head in the hope of putting some sense into it. End of chapter one.